0: Section 49 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a Library Fox recording. All Library Fox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit libraryfox.org. Recording by Rainbows and Sunshine. Chapter 15, Economic Changes by William Cunningham, Part 1. We are accustomed to remark on the extraordinary economic changes which have taken place during the last 300 years. Commercial intercourse has increased enormously. The age of invention has brought about a veritable revolution in the process of manufacture, and agriculture has been indirectly but deeply affected by these influences. Despite the growth, however, in a volume of trade, in the mass of wealth, and in a number of population. Similar principles of economic policy and commercial enterprise have been in vogue all this time. The 17th, 18th, and 19th century belong to the same period in the world history. The turning point was passed when the age of geographical discovery opened up the possibility of communication between all parts of the globe. And when the 17th century began, There had been time for the readjustment of the more limited ambitions of the Middle Ages to the new conditions. Rival nationalities were trying then, as they are today, to strengthen their naval and military forces with the aid of resources drawn from distant lands. And a close analogy is observable between the practices which were then pursued by the most progressive countries and some of the expedients which are being proposed at the present time. The commercial struggles and the economic controversies of the 17th century may seem petty and trivial, but the atmosphere is perfectly familiar, since they are thoroughly modern in character. The preceding period of 300 years with which we are concerned at present, the 14th, 15th, and 16th century, was also a time of rapid movement in the economic sphere, but the changes which occurred in that era... Contrast forcibly with those of the modern world. There are a few indications of steady growth in those troubled times. They were marked, instead, by the breakup of medieval society and the reconstruction of economic organization on entirely different lines. It is probable that, according to modern standards, no startling change in the total volume of trade occurred between the reigns of Philip the Fair and the accession of Henry of Navarre. But during the time, the method of commercial practice had been fundamentally altered and the institutions which controlled industrial activity had been remodeled. Although the process of manufacture and agriculture remained almost the same, there was a veritable revolution in commerce at the close of the Middle Ages. And as its result, every aspect of economic life and every member of the body economic was transformed. The drastic character of these changes will be more easily understood if we try to compare economic life in the earlier part of the 14th century when medieval institutions were at their best with the state of affairs at the opening of the 17th when the modern period was already beginning. The area traversed by 14th century merchants was very restricted when compared with the voyage of Dutch or English traders in the 17th century. Medieval Christendom was hemmed in on the east and south of Mohammedan lands. And though Europeans ventured to the borders of these territories and founded factories at many points in them, they could not penetrate into the interior or establish direct commercial connections with the distant regions which supplied spices and silk. Maritime intercourse was confirmed to the Mediterranean and the Black Sea, the Baltic and the North Sea, and the eastern border of the Atlantic. Within these narrow geographical limits, each commercial community aimed at obtaining a profitable monopoly in some line of trade, and at ousting competitors. This policy gave rise to the arbitrary restrictions on trading voyages. The Genes and the Venetians contended for the possession of the commerce of the Black Sea. Venice succeeded in controlling the trade on the Adriatic and in this valley of the Po. The merchant of the Han's towns would not admit any rivals in the Baltic. The command of particular harbors carried with it a supremacy in neighboring waters and secured the exclusive possession of particular routes so long as coasting voyages were in vogue. The geographical discoveries of the 15th century not only opened new regions to maritime intercourse, but they also gave a new form to commercial rivalry. The maintenance of privileged rights at particular ports was less important in a new era when the compass had come into common use. With the wide field for their activities presented by the New World and a now-accessible East, merchants no longer confined themselves to struggling for a share of the limited trade, which had grown up at special points. Statesmen learned to vie with each other in trying to extend the market for goods by establishing factories in remote lands and planting colonies. For this seemed to be the secret of commercial success. Political and commercial considerations were so closely mingled at the opening of the 17th century that it is difficult to distinguish the trading enterprise from the military ambition of this period. But at least it may be said that the merchants who were content to abide by the old routes and methods of business were being rapidly deposed from their former supremacy. As compared with the conditions which prevail in modern days, Society in the 14th century was very definitely organized in recognized groups. Personal relations were not easily alterable at will. There were few opportunities for change of employment or even for change of residence from one place to another. In rural districts, the peasantry were everywhere, practically attached to particular estates as serfs and the artisan classes had but little encouragement to migrate from place to place. Though in some callings, such as that of masons, special provision was made for undertaking work in a locality where building was required. While in other instances, there seemed to have been a recognized period of wonder hair. Even the merchants engaged in active trade were forced, as we have seen, to keep to certain routes of commercial connection, and at other times their operations were confined to transaction in some one class of goods and no other. There was comparatively little freedom for change in any department of trading activity. In the most advanced communities, such restrictions had not been swept away entirely, even at the beginning of the 17th century, but they were much criticized and the difficulty of enforcing them was increasing. The deeply marked social distinction and the strong local attachments of the Middle Ages were closely connected with another economic feature, the importance of which is sometimes overlooked. The use of money was not nearly so general in the ordinary affairs of life, as it has come to be in modern times. In many rural districts, the peasant's payment for the use of his holdings was rendered in service or in kind, laborers were often remunerated, in parts at least, by being provided with rations of food, shelter, and necessary wearing apparel. Even when these vestiges of natural economy had passed away and payment in money had been introduced, the terms of exchange were frequently the subject of regulation. There was often a recognized rate at which due in service or in kind could be commuted for money. Our attempts were made to determine the prices of goods and the rates of wages by authority, either in the interests of the consumer or, at other times and places, in that of the producer. All sorts of rates which are now reached by bargaining and by the higgling of the market were then regarded as the proper subject of official regulation. The circumstances of the day and the limited character of the market rendered the system convenient, but it had also very strong support in the current morality of the time, so long as theorists maintained that every article had an intrinsic just price which was ordinarily ascertained by common estimation and which was, as a matter of fact, closely related to the expense of production The strongest prejudice was excited against those who made a living by taking advantage of variations of price in different places or at different seasons of the year. However, imperfectly they may have been carried out. These efforts to enforce reasonable prices probably put considerable restraint on certain forms of extortion, while they tended to check the violence of the fluctuations which must occasionally occur in every kind of trade. In the 14th century, this elaborate system of economic regulation was organized by civic authorities. It was to a very small extent a matter for royal or national interference. Each town formed a separate economic center, which not only regulated its own internal affairs, but pursued its own policy in its trading relations with other places. Some cities were banded together for the sake of maintaining common interests and formed federations like that of the Hans League, but on the whole they cherished economic independence. Each city had to deal with the problems of its own food supply. Some towns, such as Nimes, could rely on the produce of their own lands, though others, like Bordeaux, were dependent on commerce for the sustenance of their inhabitants. While many erected large greeneries, To enable them to tide over occasional periods of scarcity, which might arise from the failure of crops or the interruption of trades. The diverse circumstances in which they were placed rendered it inevitable that each should, more or less consciously, devise its own economic policy and control the machinery which regulated industrial life. Some towns had special advantage for one branch of manufacture, and some for others. Florence owed her prosperity to skill in the working and the dressing of cloth. Genoa excelled in the production of arms, and Venice was successful in bringing the manufacture of glass and silk to a high state of perfection. The precise status of the companies and guilds and lodges of the middle Ages varied from place to place, and the organization of one craft might differ considerably from that of another. But this one characteristic held good generally, that all these bodies were municipal institutions which had regard to the welfare of the public or of the trade in each particular town. Civic patriotism not only affected the character of the international regulation of industry but it also determined the policy of each town towards outsiders. The jealousy of foreign artisans, i.e. of those who were not burgesses, gave rise to bitter dispute in the neighborhood of Bruges and other Flemish towns, and foreign merchants were seriously hampered in attempts to trade, unless they could secure special privileges and particular establishments of their own, with accommodation for residents, and for the warehousing of their goods. The cities of Aragon, Provence, and Italy had such factories in the Mohammedan towns of Morocco, Tunis, Egypt, and Syria. The members of the Hans League had a similar establishment in London, and their settlement at Bergen became so powerful as to dominate over the native portion of the place. In the 14th century, Commerce was intermunicipal rather than international in character. Though similar usages prevailed very widely, and disputes could be settled according to law merchant, which was recognized as generally binding, trade was carried on to the greatest advantage at the fairs, where the merchants of many cities could meet on equal terms. In the present day, Free traders take account of the economic advantage of the world as a whole and discuss industrial and commercial affairs from a cosmopolitan standpoint. While protectionists are inclined to limit their consideration to the interests of some one particular country, in the Middle Ages, very few merchants or politicians were in a position to take account of national prosperity. They limited their views to a narrower sphere and were content to concentrate their attention on the welfare of a particular town. With regard both to the administration of industry and to the regulation of commerce, the city was the principal economic unit, in the medieval as it had been in the ancient world. Such were the chief contrasts between the economic life of medieval and of modern times. Were we to seek a phrase which should indicate the general character of the transition from one to the other, we might say that this revolution consisted in the rise of nationalities as the basis of industrial organization and commercial policy. Economically considered, medieval Christendom consisted of a system of city-states, while modern history described the commercial and colonial rivalries of great nations. During the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries, we can trace the gradual subversion of the older institutions, and we can also see the rise of the newer forms of organization. The corresponding changes were not, of course, exactly synchronous in every land. Indeed, those places where the older and stereotyped system had the greatest vitality We're at a positive disadvantage in accepting modification and adopting new methods. To follow the course of so widespread and complicated, a revolution would be well-nigh impossible without a clue. But fortunately, we can have little doubt as to the factor primarily concerned in producing these momentous changes. Even the 14th and 15th centuries were marked by the formation of capital and the process went on with great rapidity in the 16th. The whole period furnishes abundant illustrations of the power of moneyed men, and by fixing attention on them and their action, we can most easily trace the influences which were at work in building up the economic systems of modern Europe. Modern economists maintain that there are three requisites of production, labor, capital, and land. But in the early Middle Ages, agriculture and industrial work were both carried on without the intervention of capital, as we now understand the term. A capitalist may be regarded as the owner of a mass of wealth which is constantly altering its form by means of exchange. He tries to get gain by turning over his stock, and is on the lookout for opportunities by applying and replacing it frequently. This is equally true of the capital of the financer and the merchant. Until recently, it held good of capital engaged in the processes of manufacture and of tillage. The age of invention has rendered it necessary to lock up large amounts of capital in expensive machinery, or to sink it in permanent improvements of the soil. But at the beginning of the modern era, capital might be described as a mass of wealth that was constantly being put into circulation and replaced. The financier exchanged his ready money for securities, which he held till the sum was repaid. The merchant bought and exported a cargo of goods, which he hoped to sell for money. Manufacturers obtained the services of laborers by paying wages and bought materials which were converted into commodities for sale. Facilities for exchange were necessary at every step. Before the capitalist, administration of industry and agriculture could be introduced. There had been no opportunity for such an introduction, so long as society was organized on the basis of natural economy. In any department of life where payments are made in kind or in service rather than in money, no room remains for the operation of the capitalist. So long as the cultivator continues to live on the produce of his fields and his stock, and only occasionally offers some of his surplus for sale, he is conducting his business in a fashion quite incompatible with the aims of the enterprising capitalist, who desires to dispose of his whole crop at a profit. During the long ages when society had been organized in self-sufficing estates, the familia and each being engaged in catering for household needs and not in working for a market, there was no true exchange, and therefore no occasion for a measure of value, or for the use of money, among those engaged in different avocations. The transition from natural to money economy was a gradual process, and afforded great opportunities of gain to the men whose wealth consisted of coins and bullion. In the 12th and 13th century, many private persons had large hordes and received a handsome income by making advances to such wealthy people as were in temporary straits for want of ready money. Much of this business arose in connection with the revenue system. Kings were glad to borrow on the security of their royal jewels, thus making it possible to anticipate the slow collection of taxes and fit out an armed expedition. The financiers also lent money to landed proprietors to enable them to meet some sudden demand for an aid, and took as security the title deeds of an estate so as to enjoy the certainty of being reimbursed when rents were due. The lending of the 13th and 14th century was almost entirely for military and other unproductive purposes. It enriched the moneyed men who obtained high interest on their loans but they did not provide capital or invigorate the industry of the country. Even in those cases where debts were contracted in order to erect magnificent buildings, these costly edifices were not available for promoting the further increase of wealth. Medieval capital was lent for purposes of unproductive consumption. Thus applied, the money failed to bring about an increase of wealth, but remained, as Aristotle would have said, Baron. This fact goes far to account for the long continued prejudice against Jews and Lombards. Since no addition to the wealth of the community arose through their intervention, it seemed that any gain occurring to them in their operations must have been made at the expense of the borrowers, and ought to be condemned as extortionate. Under these circumstances, a traditional objection to interest of every kind was strongly maintained and found expression in the writings of casuists and in the decisions of ecclesiastical courts against usury. The unsatisfactory character of the transactions of medieval bankers reacted on the prosperity of their business, and eventually brought about their ruin. It was a constant difficulty for their debtors to scrape together money which would reimburse the Jew or the Lombard for wealth that had been unremuneratively expended, and it was natural enough that the capitalists should suffer in turn from defaulting creditors. The Jews were under such serious disabilities that it was only by special favor that they could recover their debt and several of the Florentine and other Italian bankers were ruined by breaches of royal fate. About the middle of the 14th century, but the failure of the Templars, who had also organized an immense banking business, was due to political rather than economic causes. At that time, very few opportunities existed of so using capital that it should not only bring in a return to the owner, but also increase the wealth of the community. There was, however, all through the Middle Ages, one such opening for the profitable employment of capital, and of this the great Italian houses took full advantage. The merchant who engaged in active trade and visited distant markets with a cargo of goods was rendering a real service to the community. He was enabling the inhabitants of certain districts to enjoy the benefit of products which did not grow on their own soil, or of wares which they had not the skill to manufacture. So long as the merchant confined himself to such operations, no questions were raised by the strictest moralist as to the legitimacy of his transactions, or as to the lawfulness of gains thus derived and capitalists who joined together in taking the risk of useful business of this kind were held to be perfectly justified in sharing the profits which occurred to them from their enterprise. While nearly all money men were under suspicion of occasional unfairness, the medieval conscience clearly recognized that the capitalist was fully entitled to some gain, so long as he transported commodities without trying to bargain himself out of risk. Capital engaged in active commerce was employed in producing goods at the places where they were most wanted, and it was being applied to facilities the production of wealth. The importing merchant neither increased the material objects nor altered their intrinsic qualities, but he gave them greater utility by conveying them to places where they were largely required. The economic revolution at the close of the Middle Ages was largely due to the discovery of new methods for the productive employment of capital. New lines of commerce were opened, and it was also found that various branches of industry could be prosecuted to greater advantage. When taken up and organized by capitalists, success in these ventures enabled enterprising men to amass more wealth and to form additional capital while it tempted those who had hoards lying idle to find means of employing them as capital. By so doing, they brought large sums of money into circulation and, moreover, secured an income for themselves. The formation of new capital and the employment of hoards as capital for facilitating production went on apace in the 15th and 16th centuries. The lending of capital for purposes of unproductive consumption did not cease but came to be an entirely subordinate because it proved to be less secure and a less remunerative method of employing wealth. There was no apparent reason, so far as we can see in looking back to the beginning of the 14th century, why the material progress, which had been steadily maintained for some generations, should not have been continued. Medieval society, stereotyped as it was, had been capable of considerable readjustment, as circumstances had changed. It seemed as if capital might have gradually found opening in new directions, so that the medieval system would have been slowly transformed without any serious rupture with the past. At Florence, in particular, capitalist organization existed side by side with the older form of industrial life at the beginning of the 14th century, and as money economy became increasingly prevalent, Capitalistic enterprise might have taken advantage of the new fields which were ready for its operation. But circumstances combined to render this impossible. Medieval society and its institution suffered an especially severe blow from the terrible pestilence known as the Black Death, which ravaged Europe in the middle of the 14th century. From this shock, the various countries of Europe only recovered slowly, and when material prosperity began to be restored, the old institutions were no longer suitable to the change requirement of the times. The old industrial life had been so far disintegrated by the disturbed conditions of the 14th and 15th centuries that the change from the medieval to the modern was accomplished, not as a gradual transition, but as a violent revolution. Three principal causes combined to subject the social and economic system of medieval Europe to an overwhelming strain. Some uncertainty must necessarily attach to conclusions based on the statistics drawn from medieval sources, and there can be little doubt that the estimates of the mortality due to the Black Death made by contemporary writers were grossly exaggerated. Many records, however, exist of the deaths in particular places, or among a special class such as the parochial clergy, and these statements appear to be well worthy of credit it seems to be generally agreed that at least half of the population was swept away by the successive visitations of this pestilence. While we cannot easily conceive what must have been the full effects of such wholesale destruction, we may at least conclude that considerable tracts of country were depopulated, so that the area devoted to tillage was necessarily reduced. We have also abundant evidence of labor agitation in many branches of industry, the whole system of regulated rates and prices were seriously undermined. Under the new conditions, the old payments had become unsatisfactory. Changes of some kind, both as to the terms on which land was rented and as to those on which labor was employed, were inevitable. The constant wars of the latter half of the 14th and the 15th centuries were another disruptive forces and proved fatal to the maintenance of the highly organized system of medieval times. In the countries which were the scene of frequent warlike operations, immense mischief was done to agriculture. It is difficult to understand how a rural population should have survived in France at all. When we read of the ravages of the English armies and the devastation caused by the factions, the chronic disorder not only affected tillage and the food supply, but rendered internal trade so insecure that it was practically suspended altogether. What had been a prosperous kingdom with many well-organized cities, and with fairs that were frequented by merchants from all parts of Europe, was reduced to utter desolation and ruin. Similar results attended the Hussite Wars in Bohemia, and, to a lesser degree, the Wars of the Roses in England. The Italian cities must also have found their inter-civic hostilities a serious drain on their resources. Venice and Genoa had carried on a long protracted struggle about Chioggia, Pisa, was at a length forced to succumb to Florence, and Milan gradually established her superiority over her neighbors. Doubtless to many districts, the wars brought profit as well as loss. Swiss and Italian mercenaries often engaged in fighting as a regular trade, in which much booty was to be obtained and successful cities might recoup themselves for their outlay by securing new avenues of commerce at the expense of their rivals. Still, the fact remains that war was a disturbing element. The instability introduced by it into all the relations of life was irreconcilable with the maintenance of the old industrial system or old trading connections. The countries which for any considerable period enjoyed a relative immunity from external war such as Flanders, the Duchy of Burgundy, the Rhineland, and Bavaria, made rapid progress, while others failed to regain the prosperity they had enjoyed before the Black Death, or sank into deeper and deeper decay. The most obvious and important commercial result of the wars in France was seen in the diversion of the traffic between Italy and Flanders from the Rhone Valley, so as to increase the intercourse over the Alps and by the Valley of the Inn. Augsburg, Nuremberg, and the cities of the Rhineland came to be for a time on the Great Highway of Europe, while there was also increased maritime communication between the Mediterranean and the Low Countries by the Straits of Gibraltar and the English Channel. Other political causes affected the more distant trading connections of European cities. The Union of the Northern Kingdoms of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden under Queen Margaret consolidated the opposition to the monopoly asserted by the Hans League over the commerce of the north. While the rise of the power of Poland and her successful contest with the Teutonic Order interrupted the lines of its eastern communications, when in 1477, Ivan, Tsar of Russia, brought Novgorod into complete objection and it ceased to be an independent city, the merchants of the Hans' League lost their footing at the point where they had established connections with traders who were engaged in traffic with the East. There were other movements in Eastern Europe which seriously affected the course of merchandise. The advancing power of the Turks destroyed the commercial colonies on the Black Sea and interrupted the trading intercourse in the Danube Valley. In the latter half of the 15th century, The commerce between east and west was almost entirely confined to the Egyptian and Assyrian routes. Venice was the chief depot on the northern side of the Mediterranean for eastern spices, and the center for which these highly valued commodities were distributed to Germany, Flanders, and the north. The Turkish conquest had forced the principal trade of the east into restricted channels, and Christian successes were responsible for the increasing difficulties under which the commerce of the western Mediterranean was carried on. The expulsion of the Moors from Spain, which was completed by the conquest of Granada, was followed by an extraordinary development of national vigor and material prosperity in many parts of the peninsula. But the exiled population aroused the sympathy of their co-religionists in Africa. An increase of marauding expeditions by sea ensued, and the difficulties of merchants who trafficked with Morocco were seriously aggravated. On every side, the old lines of distant trade were greatly modified by political changes. And the prosperity of the towns, which had risen into greatness as centres of commerce, was shaken at its very foundations, But rural and urban districts alike long continued to show the desolation caused directly and indirectly by the Black Death. End of section 49. Recording by Rainbows and Sunshine.